Okay, so we got the notes there for you. Um, it should be the furthest, right, right as you come in the door, the first set that you run into. It'll start with views of creation, eight views on the from of the age of the earth. So that should should be the notes. So. The last time we were together, I know it's been a few weeks, but we were looking at creation. And so we ran through um, Genesis 1 and 2, uh, just kind of giving a big picture of that. And so this last class here, we're more focused on alternative views, or even within Christian circles. So we're going to look at just different views of the age of the earth, and then uh, we'll spend some time with evolution, responding to some opposing theories to the biblical view of creation right there. So there's some different views of the age of the earth. Um, how many just kind of from the top of your head, what are some of those views that you're aware of? Cone's 14 billion years. Okay. So old, old Earth, uh -huh. millions of years, yeah. Mm -hmm. What's maybe some other views? Anybody been to the Creation Museum? So what's that view? Is that like 6,000? Yeah, yeah. So young Earth, yep, yep, exactly. Mm -hmm. less, or less than 10,000 years, mm-hmm. Okay, so those are probably the two most familiar, you know, common uh, views that you're you probably heard right there. So the the question, you know, as we think about Genesis one and two, the question is: Is this just a, a literary form um, teaching us theological truths with a historical count of exactly what happened, or is it a scientific statement? Is it a poem? Is it a myth? So how people view Genesis 1 and 2, how they answer those questions is going to impact then the way that they would answer that question. So certainly uh, we as Christians would agree that the Bible is not simply a scientific textbook. God just didn't give it to us for the sole purpose of understanding science. Now, everything it says about science is true, but it's a lot more than a scientific book. So there's definitely literary features. There's, there's definitely symbolism. And the main purpose of these texts is to give us a theology of creation. It's also true that, as we talked about last time, the Bible is meant to address the myths and the stories of the ancient Near East. So there's like the Epic of Gilgamesh. That's a... Uh, an ancient Near East story of creation. And you can actually read it. You can find it online, and you'll see some of the similarities with the Genesis account and some of the differences. Um, so, I mean, it's clear that the Bible responds to that, those kinds of stories right there to, to point it out or to challenge them. Um, so what we see, though, is that the Bible is very different. So in, in the biblical account, God is the Lord, not some monster, not some sea monster or something else like that. 
So Genesis 1 and 2 is definitely a literary masterpiece. There's no question about that. Just the way it was written, the style it was written, it's definitely a literary masterpiece, but it's also historical and true. And so throughout the you know, church history, people have had different understandings of Genesis 1 and 2, um, but they've always interpreted those accounts as historical so again, Christians throughout the years have always viewed Genesis 1 and 2 as historical events that have happened, not some kind of uh, spiritual analogies or um, figurative uh, things that just are pointing to a, a higher point. So a couple, a couple of viewpoints. Um, the old liberal view, so Genesis 1 and 2, they would say it's just legendary and mythical. And, you know, so in the early 1900s, late 1800s, early 1900s, um, over in Europe, there were a lot of uh, theological challenges to the Bible. Just the Bible was being attacked in a lot of different ways. Um, these, these people were just writing to really undermine the authority of Scripture. And they just couldn't believe that people would actually think Genesis 1 and 2 were true. And they thought, no, we can't you know, people are not going to believe this, so we've got to come up with a better way so that the Christian faith can be saved, you know. So let's just call it um, mythical. Let's just point out how it's pointing to, you know, some spiritual purpose in all of this. So that way people can still have their faith, but then we can also have, you know, the science. So you have that, and then um, in response to that, uh, you, you, you get what we call a neo-orthodoxy, so people came along like Karl Barth, and they really were trying to save Christianity from this liberalism. Um, and we'll not get into you know, their views, but, but at the end of the day, you know, these just different kind of views um, really sort of downplayed or even dismissed or denied the historical truths of Genesis 1 and 2. So the view that we're going to hold, of course, would be the historic evangelical view. So Genesis 1 and 2 are both truthful and factual. So again, like we said, Genesis 1 through 3 is full of symbolism and poetic uh, features. There's trees, there's rivers, there's cherubim. Uh, but just because there's some symbolism in there and some poetic features doesn't mean that it's not historical. So here are some reasons for believing that Genesis 1 and 2 and Adam and Eve are historical. So the, the biblical genealogies take Adam and Eve as historical and real figures. You know, 1 Chronicles 1.1, 1, 1, Luke 3.38. So the way that, the, the way that uh, future writers of the Bible look back and view this is Adam and Eve were two people who really existed. They weren't just... Um, representatives. They weren't just, in a sense, uh, one of many that God created at the same time. They weren't just some imaginary people that the writer of uh, Genesis made up to, to kind of prove this theological point. I mean, they were truly real people who existed. Secondly, Jesus um, assumes the historical existence of Adam and Eve. So he's, he's always going back to Genesis 1 and 2, especially in connections about divorce. So he'll tie it back to Adam and Eve. And so it wouldn't make any sense for Jesus to prove his point by referencing two people who never existed. 
Paul likewise assumes the historical evidence of Adam and Eve. He builds a lot of his arguments going back. Um, Adam he views as the head of the really in a, the sense the head of the human race here, um, and uh, so teaching as Christ as the second Adam is all built on the fact that there was a first Adam. So if there never really was a first Adam, then you know Paul's argument is pretty weak to try to show that Jesus is the second Adam, the last Adam. And so unless Adam and Eve were historical figures who were created good and then sinned, the whole, human, the whole Christian position is destroyed. Right, so that's what our Christian faith is built on, that we have two historical figures, Adam and Eve, created good, they sinned, um, and then God brings his redemption. If we don't have that, then we have nothing. Now, Christians don't agree on whether or not we need to see some compatibility between the biblical accounts of creation and the true facts of science. So there are some differences within that, like how much compatibility do we have with science and with the biblical accounts of creation? So some, there, there, were, there are some who argue for compatibility, that science and the Christian faith are compatible, and they would fall into two camps. Those who would affirm modern evolutionary science, that would be one camp. And those who believe the Bible is true and evolutionary conclusions are false. So let me just draw it up here to, to kind of help solidify this in your minds. So we have Bible and science are compatible with each other. And by compatible, I mean, what, what we mean by that is they're not at odds with each other. This is not saying that, you know, th here we're not saying that um, everything in science is, everything that scientists claim is true. I'm not saying that, but but we, we can we can work with this, okay? We, we can see the Bible and science as being able to work together, rightly understood, you know, science. And so within this camp would be two positions. So number one, uh, evolution is true. Okay, so they, they have it pretty easy and in a sense. It's like, well, evolution is true, so then we've got to figure out then how to get the Bible then to fall into this, right? So, so they're going to have to do some twisting, as you'll see here. And then camp number two, which I believe that most of us would be in, uh, would be um, we can ex uh, the Bible is true. And um, then evolution is false. So I'm going to put a question mark by the Bible there. I mean, again, it's not that they would, to be fair, it's not that they would say the Bible is wrong, but they're going to, just going to have to adapt and change things in here to make this first part true. So I believe that most of us would fall into this camp right here. The Bible is true, evolution is false. And so when you hear, um, you know, when you hear science, 
it's not it's not like these red flags automatically go up and and we're thinking oh i just don't trust anything you know a scientist said that oh i'm not going to believe anything they said you know they said that there's such a thing called gravity huh. they said the they said the world is round huh yeah it's flat out there there's no gravity you know completely rejecting that like right we're not we're not there we're not in that camp but we believe evolution is false and then you have this other position over here um, so we'd say that that it's incompatible. Um, so we'll call that in, incompatible. The Bible and science. So their their position number one, a one camp here would be that. There's no need to reconcile anything here. So there's no way to reconcile the Bible with science. You just can't do it. So don't even try. So position number one is don't try. Just accept that the Bible and science are not going to be compatible and just go to sleep. Can't, can't figure it out. Um, So, yeah, that's, that's the view here, all right? So we'll look at, um, we're really going to look more over on this side, not so much with this today. So over here, um, evolution is true, but we've got to figure out how to fit this within the Bible. Oh, okay, so solution would be what they would call theistic evolution, Okay, anybody heard of that phrase before? Mm -hmm. So what, what they would say there is that, and again, these, um, there, are the, there are those in the Christian camp who would even identify themselves as this. Uh, but what, would they, what they would say there would be that God used evolution as his tool in creation. So God um, only intervened in certain points in the evolutionary process. Uh, the rest is the random process of evolution, which is the process that God used in allowing development of all like forms. So God at certain points would step in to make sure that you know it was going okay, and then he'd just let the process of evolution kind of go for a while or whatever, and then it, just at certain points he would step in so that the outcome of it was what he wanted, but he used the whole process of evolution to, uh, to do that. So these thinkers um, would give a lot of precedence to science and to evolutionary explanations but they also believe that the Bible does have something to say on the issue. So they, they would believe that God made a fully gifted universe or that he determined to use purely naturalistic means to develop the universe um, once he had made up the basic stuff of this world. Some people argue that uh, Adam and Eve were just two primates out of millions 
whom God entered into a covenant, enabling them to have conscience, knowledge of God, and rationality. So God created, you know, evolutionary processes came up with a whole bunch of people, millions, and God just picks two of them out as the ones that he's going to, um, you know, utilize. So as you hear that, what are maybe some problems that you can think of in your mind to this whole idea of theistic evolution? Because it kind of sounds kind of convenient, doesn't it? Like, okay, we've got science that teaches evolution, and we have the Bible that talks about God being creator. Wouldn't it be great if we can just bring that two, those two together some way? Oh, theistic evolution. Perfect. <laughs> can you think of any problems with, with theistic evolution? Well, your starting point that it's the Bible that has to change. The Bible has to fit. Mm -hmm. It's not your starting point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so, depending on what you mean when you say science and is science, you know, how you define science will determine with the question whether science and the Bible is compatible. But mm -hmm. Denise nailed on the head there with the idea like, uh, what does the Bible have to answer to? Yeah, that's good. And then the idea that evolution itself is just a theory. Uh huh. You know, <laughs> people often talk about it like, whether, you know, when you people say the science is settled, mm -hmm. and yet there's no evidence for evolution and it remains a theory of mm -hmm. ours. Yeah. I was literally just going to say that, but, you know, the last three years, that's been a constant refrain. So you can't argue with science. The science is settled, except that even the scientists, <laughs> you know, they're, they're theories. It's scientific theory. It's not, you know, scientific fact with a lot of this. Yeah. Good. Have you ever studied Hugh Ross, have you? A little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Comment he made, I think, you might cut yours. That you know, he's an astrophysicist, doctorate in astrophysics, mm -hmm. and he says astrophysicists tend to be Christians, biologists tend to be evolutionists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this this view, I mean, just kind of think you can kind of really summarize the problem with this view is like you have the God of the gaps. It's a very weak God, a God who messes up a lot. You know, he, he's got to start this process of evolution and then it's like things keep going wrong and he's like has to keep jumping in to fix it. I mean, it just shows a very weak God uh, throughout this. So creation in the Bible is always purposeful, um, but evolution just depends on this randomness. So all of these mutations exist with no purpose from God since randomness and purposeness can exist. Uh, Grudem says, the driving force in the development of new organisms and new life, according to Scripture, is God's intelligent design. 
And uh, at the end, God declares what he has created very good, not necessarily millions of mutations required to get to that final good evolved end product. Secondly, once it's admitted that God intervened at any point in the process, then you are forced to admit there's intelligent design and not random evolution. So that's a weakness of the position right there, right? If, once, if you say that God's only intervening in certain points, well, he's intervening. Okay, so it's still going to be incompatible with what your naturalists are going to be teaching. So some of these people are trying to, in a sense, be the good guy, you know, and be buddy buddies with so-and-so, but it's just not going to work like that. They're still not going to accept it. Uh, third, God's creative word brings immediate results, immediate response. So God speaks and it happens. Uh, we see nothing in there about billions of years of subtle changes. And that's what evolution really depends on. It's presupposing this massive amounts of time. The scripture teaches that God created all different kinds of plants and animals. Yet theistic evolution must maintain that the different kinds of plants and animals are the result of millions of years in the evolutionary process. So again, they're at odds with what the Bible is saying. And God's active involvement in creating and sustaining runs counter, runs counter to the hands-off evolutionary approach of theistic evolution. Why would God begin to care for them now? Right? I mean, if, God, if God's a hands-off God and just lets things go, why did he at the end just decide, like, okay, now I'll step in? You know, it doesn't make any sense. Why wouldn't he have been involved in throughout this whole process right here? And you see that throughout the Bible where God is a very hands-on, personal God and those, those places right there with people, with grass, with birds, uh, and with other creatures. Then you have the creation of Adam and Eve. So if you just read Genesis 1 and 2... I mean, it forces them to say, yeah, I mean, from what the text is saying here in Genesis 1 and 2, God intervened to create Adam and Eve. So again, this is the weakness of their argument. Um, the first uh, man and woman were highly involved. They could speak, think, had various other abilities from the moment they were created. They were created with age. So there's all kinds of challenges for theistic evolutionists. Um, again, and like we said, some have argued that they're not historical, uh, but that's just not the case. The New Testament presents them as historical. So I, I love this. I love what Burkhoff says. He says, theistic evolution is really a child of embarrassment, which calls God in at periodic interv intervals to help nature over the chasms that yawn at her feet. It is neither the biblical doctrine of creation nor a consistent theory of evolution. So it's just kind of a joke. I mean, frankly, you're not going to satisfy the naturalist and you're going to be at odds with the biblical, biblical account. So don't even bother with theistic evolution. There's a, a great book on, um, it's a, it's a, I think it's a collection of different essays and different responses to theistic evolution. I think it weighs in around 400 pages. So if you really hear this topic, like, wow, I'd really like to uh, study up on you know responses to theistic evolution, I could find that in... Uh, send you the name, but it's, it's a big one. Okay. So then, um, we start talking about some different theories when it comes to days. 
um, you know, days of creation here. And so some uh, have held to what's called the gap theory. It was uh, introduced in the uh, late 1800s. Um, it's even the, in the Schofield Study Bible. So the, what this theory says is there's a gap between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. So if you have your Bibles right there, you just flip open to Genesis 1. So again, we're still, we're not on the, um, we haven't got into the discussion on days of the earth yet. This is still viewing the Bible and science as compatible, you know, that question. And this is just another way that people use to try to explain how the Bible and science are compatible with each other. So one view, you know, up here is theistic evolution, okay? That's what some would say. You know, then then you can put the gap theory as another theory that people will use to try to say that uh, you know there's these two positions are compatible, and here's another way to to try to do that. So Genesis one one and one two. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then what they're going to say is that there's a gap um, of, of millions of years, or billions of years even, before the next verse. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So what they're going to say is, God first made a creation, uh, then Satan fell. Um, Satan's fall resulted in God destroying the universe, which explains why the earth is form, formless and void, since God would not create chaos in verse 2. Then God recreates the heavens and the earth in verse 3 and forward. So what you read in Genesis 1-3 through chapter 2, verse 3, isn't exactly isn't the, the account of creation anymore. It's the account of recreation. Okay? So does that, does that make sense? Uh, God starts it in 1-1. One, one. He's got this earth. Oh, no, we got a problem. Satan. Uh-oh. Back to the drawing board. God recreates it. There's been billions of years, though, that have passed. And so now we're just reading about the world that God's recreated. Everybody satisfied with that? Okay, good. <laughs> so they would say that this theory explains um, the existence of dinosaurs, uh, secondly, the long time found in the geological columns, um, the existence of a pre-Adamic race, so people before Adam, and the fossils. So what they would say is, you know those fossils that you find? Well, that's part of the first creation. Okay, so there's many problems with that argument. The obvious problem is there's no exegetical basis for it. I mean, you've just read so much into what's not there, right? You've taken a lot of liberties right there. There's not a single scripture that would point us to an earlier creation. Um, even though scripture does speak of God's judgment on the angels and the earth, none of this places the judgment prior to Genesis 1-2. 
In Genesis 131, God looks back at his work and says it's very good. But if we use the gap theory, God would have had to look back on a world that he had to start over with and say that it was very good. And that wouldn't really make sense. Um, there's a number of just different arguments, you know, that, that are listed right here and the problems with them. Um, so the biggest problem, we just kind of summarize that, the biggest problem is that you have death, like seen in the fossils before the fall, which is where the Bible places blame for all death. So that's the biggest problem. You have death before Genesis 3, which is the introduction of sin, because they're explaining, where, you know, where did the fossils come from of animals, right, and things? Well, you, you would have had to have death in order for that to occur, and that would have had to have been before Genesis 3, which is the introduction of sin into the world. Um, so that's, that's the problem right there. Now, they'll say that they find uh, support for their theory. I mean, they, they're believing this because they believe they have biblical reasons. They're not just saying, well, we just pulled it out of our heads. Uh, so 2 Peter 3.8, if you remember that verse, talks about one day with the Lord is as a thousand years. Right? So, okay. So if uh, a thousand years is one day, then the six days of creation are just time periods. So a day is an age. Could be a thousand years, could be 10,000 years, could be a hundred thousand years. Doesn't really matter. It's not a literal day. I'm glad to hear you say that. Too many people think it is a literal day. The Hebrew yom is, translates very well today, but neither one is necessarily 24 hours. If I say in the day of steam power, you know what I mean, it's not a 24-hour period. We'll actually get into that. I mean, I do, I do believe it is a literal day, uh, but we'll get into that particular point. Okay. So now, and to be fair, you can hold that position, um, and there, we're not, there's no, it's, it falls within Christian bounds, okay? So this gap theory, though, uh, you know, some, some things will push the limits. Definitely this one is outside of the bounds of Christianity. Um, you know, the gap theory is really pushing it in a sense. Um, but certainly the, uh, certainly you can have different, you can, you can have, you can still be a Christian and be old earth or young earth. Both of those are still Christian positions. So the, the day-age theory um, tries to find this, uh, this concord with the Bible and science. It says, well, science teaches that the earth is very old. Well, here we have a solution to that, this gap theory. The Bible teaches that God created everything. There were no evolutionary processes. So there you go. You have both of them. The problem, you know, you've got a lot of problems, like the sequence of events. Um, light would have been created uh, after plants and trees. Plants can't live without the sun. So you have to kind of tweak some things around to try to get this to work. Uh, there's another view um, that's called uh, catastrophism. This, uh, this argues again for some similarities, you know, some compatibility between the Bible and science. 
So uh, Henry, Henry Morris, uh, John Whitcomb from the Creation Research Institute hold this view. And, and so this would hold that evolution, uh, since it demands such long periods of time, can't account for um, these fossil graveyards, these changes in the Earth's crust. It would hold to a young Earth, so a literal six days in Genesis 1. And it would say the Earth has a catastrophic history, the flood. So the flood has deceived the geological record. Um, Ken Ham would be the most popular advocate of this view. I'm sure you've all heard of Ken Ham, right? So great guy. Um, Kurt Wise, uh, he's, he's got some really good articles and uh, videos. I'd really recommend him. Um, there's other books about, you know, the fossil uh, record, things like that. There's a, another view, um, again, within this camp here. So that view right there with the catastrophe, you know, the flood, we'd put that in here. Um, we'd put uh, this other view that I'm going to talk about in here, too. I'd, I'd probably even... I mean, there's, there's a number of Christians, you know, Christian scholars and, and things who have advocated for the gap theory. So, I mean, it is different, clearly, than this one. So, I mean, you have the gap theory. You have this catastrophe, the flood. And then uh, one more, one more big one would be like this progressive creation. So it doesn't take the six days of creation literally. Um, but again, it gives like this time periods to the days there. So it's kind of a combination of the day, the day age theory and uh, the literary theory, which is that Genesis 1 and 2 is not about teaching us um, scientific things. It's, it's about uh, this literary structure that is really setting the stage for God and his, um, his work. So th their emphasis is, is on the structure of Genesis 1 and 2. It's not about the science of Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, so you've got like, so people who hold this view would be um, Phil Johnson. Um, he's got some books on critiquing Darwinism. You mentioned Hugh Ross, astrophysicist. He would hold uh, this particular view right here. So at the end of the day, you know, within this camp right here, I'd say this is where we fall in. Um, but whatever particular view a believer holds regarding creation, we have to agree that the Bible teaches that the world is contingent on God. Uh, it's derived its being from him. God created out of nothing. The universe is under God's sovereign control. So this would rule out... You know, certainly everything up here, and even some things, um, you know, just in some other theories there. So, great, great mention of the authority of the Bible. What's the authority of the Bible? Where does that come in? So then we get into um, young Earth or old Earth. How old is the Earth? You know, estimates are young Earth. It's less than ten thousand years. Uh, old Earth, it's millions, perhaps billions of years. Um, 
you know, you can look at Grudem's systematic theology, some of the systematic theology books, and they'll really expand on the different positions right there and give you, uh, you know, reasons for, reasons against. But what we can say is that, um, again, God created out of nothing. Creation is very distinct from God, yet it's dependent on Him. There will be, in the end, no conflict between the Bible and science. So science, properly understood, in light of God, there will be no conflict with that and the Bible. Uh, secular theories of creation that deny God as the creator and sustainer, including Darwinism, evolution, are not compatible with belief in the Bible. And we can date Abraham safely back to about 2000 BC. But after that, it's, you know, we're just estimating there. So, old earth. Everybody in modern science and many believers would hold to an old earth, old earth theory. Just like uh, Joel mentioned there, um, day in Genesis 1, yom, can mean an undefined period of time. It can be translated uh, a 24-hour period, but it can also, just as true, be, be an undefined time. So there seems to be a lot of evidence in the geological strata that demands millions of years. So only, only Christians, only believers would hold to young earth theory. Uh, you can take, take a look at the works of Henry Morrison, founder of the Institute for Creation Research. He talks a lot about you know, this day and looks at um, what, that, what that means. Uh, so like in Exodus 20.11, the same word day, that's got to mean a 24-hour period there. It's not an undisclosed period of time. So it wouldn't be true to say that a day, you know, that Hebrew word, can always be translated an undisclosed period of time. That's, that's not true. There are specific points in which it has to mean a 24-hour period. Is there any other passage in the Bible, aside from 2 Peter 3.8, that somebody would appeal to to show a day meaning something other than a 24-hour period? Uh, good question. Um, Uh, off the top of my head, I don't know. That could be. Uh -huh. that though in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. when, they, when you have the Old Testament day of the Lord, they're uh -huh. referring to a time span, or is that referring to an actual day? Yeah, I would. I'd say that they would. I mean, they're looking for a specific, like, like they're viewing it as a specific day, specific time. And then the question is, you know, do a lot of people like to import Second Peter three eight? Mm -hmm. But that would be an anachronism, some taking something in the future and importing the meaning backwards. You know, when people wouldn't have understood that that way. So, you know, for the Israelites, right, who are crossing the Jordan River. In the book of Joshua, but there are five books of the Bible in hand, and Moses has told, told them for the first time the creation account has been written down. How would they have understood Yom, a day, mm -hmm. without 
without second Peter three A being written there, you know, they don't have that yet. Uh huh. That's it's a big care yeah, we have to be careful about. Yeah. And is that what Second Peter three eight is trying to do too? Is Second Peter three eight trying to teach us the definition of a day in Genesis? That's not probably Peter's point nope. the first either. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah, good. There's a, uh, a book that I like. It's, I think it's called Where There's Smoke, There's Fire. It's, it's like a debate on the age of the earth. And um, it's, it's a very like friendly book. Um, and it just looks at both sides of that, young earth, old earth. Uh, or, or, yeah, young earth and old earth. But it's all from a Christian perspective right there. Um, so there, there's just a lot of good resources on that. But I think the strongest, you know, the strongest arguments are in favor of young earth. So one of the questions is, you know, what about, why does it, you know, what about creation? Like it, it was created looking like it had age, right? And so that's one of the objections that, you know, the old earth has toward young earth is like, well, Adam and Eve, for example, you know, they weren't babies when they were here. Like God created them as mature humans. Or what about the trees? Did they have rings in them? You know, and, and if so, um, is that God being deceitful, like creating something to look like it was old when it really wasn't old? So a lot, we can respond again to a lot of different ways to that. Um, so there would have been edible, you know, God created uh, Adam and Eve with maturity. There would have been edible plants and trees to eat immediately. That means that plants and trees would have had growth rings. Light from the stars, they would have seen light from the stars immediately. They didn't have to wait for the light to travel the distance. And so it was, things were certainly created with the appearance of age. And, you know, that's why on the older side, they're going to push back and say, well, what about that? What do you do about that? Now, we can, agree, we can agree that the flood uh, certainly altered the face of the earth. It put um, fossils in all kinds of layers. So what do we do as far as conclusions here? Regardless of how you get around it, there's challenges on both camps, young earth and old earth. I believe that scripture points toward a young earth. There's nothing in the text that points to billions of years that comes from science in more recent time. It's a presupposition of theory, right? It's what they're coming in assuming that this is how it, this is what we have to have in order for it to work. And that was not, you know, the case throughout most of church history. That didn't show up until much, you know, much in our more recent times here, or at least 1800s. Uh, there's always the danger of undermining biblical authority. So where else in Scripture, just like you were pointing out, Tyson, does Yom mean millions or billions of years? That Hebrew word for day, you know, where else is it used to mean that? It's not. Or even just a long time span, you know, not exactly millions of billions of years, but just mm -hmm. a longer duration. Mm -hmm. like so Joel, Joel mentioned, like, you know, we talked about like the, the age of iron or something like that. Uh -huh. But even that, like, do people talk that way yeah. in the Old Testament? You know, do, are they familiar with using phrases like that? Or the Bronze Age, mm -hmm. or, you know, the day of this or the day of that, aside from. Katie mentioned the day of the Lord. Um, yeah. But I mean, Paul in his epistle talks about, like the Thessalonians, about you know the Lord's return coming soon, and even the Lord says, "I'm coming soon." Well, okay, what does that mean? Uh -huh. <laughs> it's been two thousand years, right? Yeah. So mm -hmm. it's a relative 
span of time. Mm -hmm. yeah, the question in the go, so I said to go back, how would it, the original audience have understood Genesis when it was read aloud to them for the first time? And they hear, say, there was morning and there was evening, the first day. You know, they don't have that. There's nothing there yet talking about the day of the, uh, the, day of the Lord or, um, you know, the return of Jesus or anything like that to kind of think about a longer span of time. How does Israelites have understood this? Yeah. Simple agrarian culture, farmers, mm -hmm. sheep, sh shepherds, you know, how they've understood Genesis 1. Yep. Yep, good. So really, and really the challenge is, you know, with old earth is death, you know? So if you have a long period of time, what do you do with that? I mean, scripture points out that it doesn't come before the fall. So what do you do if you have to go through millions or even billions of years without death? It's just a hard problem to get around. But I want to end um, talking about evolution. Um, we obviously are not going to have time to respond to all of that, but just you know, some uh, kind of a summary on that. So, let's ask a question real quick. Sure. So, how would you counsel somebody? So, we talked about some of these major theories, and you know, there's a lot. There's differences in views among Christians. So if I have a friend who's going to a church, and that church, like in their doctrinal statement and their teaching, does not hold to the literal meaning of Genesis in a day, maybe they're a gap theory or something like that. And your friend, my friend says to me, I don't think I should be going to this church. You know, how, what, what, what should I say to him? Should I say, yeah, you're right. You shouldn't go to that church. Or, no, I think you should stick it out. How would I, how would you counsel someone in that situation? How would a theological triage that? <laughs> oh, throw a hard one at me here. <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> Josh's final exam. Yeah. <laughs> I'll have to uh, change the rules on the questions from now on. <laughs> you fly on the wall for Monday morning step. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's, it's a great. Uh... <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a great question. And um, it's, it's certainly one, you know, that, that we'd want to encourage that person to uh, really get a lot more information about um, because... There could be a number of factors with that. So, I mean, if you have a church that uh, holds fast to the authority of Scripture and is very orthodox, uh, you know, in their their biblical positions, um, you know, that's that's certainly a, a very strong point for staying in that church. But on the other hand, if they're they're very loose and loosey goosey with uh, a lot of their other doctrines, um, you know, and this this is just one of them. That's just an example of that then that would show that, you know, it's probably time for you to move on to a church that does hold to uh, the biblical teachings. So, uh, like, like we said, you know, Christians can't do have freedom to disagree about some of these things. Um, and uh, so in that person's case, um, I think he would want to probe into... Uh, how do they answer some of these questions between the Bible and science? You know, finding out, like, can they be more specific about how they reconcile the two, um, just to, to maybe get some more information that way? Because um, maybe, maybe it's just the position of the church that 
hey, what we're just trying to emphasize is that God created this. God's got it. You know, God's in control. Um, we're focused on God here. We're not trying to delve into the weeds of how old the earth is or, you know, just things like that. We're going to, we're just holding to the fact that, that God's creator and that um, he created us. You know, maybe, maybe that's their position, right? And if that's the case, then okay. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, I'd probably throw it back on that person, actually, and just have them do a little bit more research and um, come to an understanding because uh, you hate to make an assumption that's not really true and then make a big decision based off of that. So I think maybe a little more, more information would be helpful. Would you counsel someone differently if they were an immature Christian versus a mature Christian in that situation when, where they could defend their faith if they were a more mature Christian? Yeah, that's a, that's a good good um, question. So, I mean, uh, the danger is always that we lose sight of the main thing and focus on a secondary issue and make that everything. Like if I, if I can just, man, the goal is to get to a church that holds to, you know, this particular view on creation in the days of the earth. And if I do that, then I'm golden. And like, I'm just going to make that my hill to die on. And and they can miss the, you know, the bigger issues at play right there. So yeah, I do, I do think um, their Christian maturity plays a lot into it. Because uh, um, typically, you know, what I would suspect would be if a Christian was hearing something different than perhaps what they're used to hearing, maybe. And anymore today, it's, it's kind of hard to know, right? Because it used to be um, in the days of Billy Graham and stuff, I mean, everybody had at least a Christian understanding of the Bible and creation. You know, they, they had that kind of coming to the table. But today, it's probably a lot of the opposite. I mean, probably a lot of folks are coming to the table with kind of this built-in assumption that, it's evolution. It's naturalism. That's that's the story. And now you're teaching, you know, that that that's not true. Like, wait, what's up with that? So, um, if I was talking to that person and found out that that's kind of the starting point of where they're coming from, um, I think you'd have to walk with them a lot more and uh, really just be with them and do a lot of teaching and instruction and. Um, maybe even talk to some of the leaders with that person to kind of hear from them what they're saying because that that person could get, probably get confused pretty easily so they might be you know they might go to talk to their pastor and then come back with something and it's like what that church believes that that's just crazy how could they hold to that and then you come to find out well that's not what they said at all you know is completely misunderstood so yeah i do think uh, a person's spiritual maturity has a lot to play in that so maybe I didn't really answer much of that question other than to say um, I would just encourage them, but, but I think it would be good to uh, give them some specific questions to go back to their church and ask. So instead of just, hey, just kind of general, like go back, talk to your church more about that, probably be good to come up with, you know, based on some things you were hearing here, more specific questions. So there used to be... Um, before the Enlightenment, uh, it was impossible not to believe. So it was virtually impossible to 
find people who didn't believe or at least didn't assume that God was necessary in order to make sense of the world. So all the way, you know, up until the Enlightenment, that was really the, the starting place. And so you, you maybe have heard the saying, um, uh, what is that, Tyson? Theology is the queen of science and philosophy is her handmaiden, or is it the other way around? So <laughs> it, it was like um, theology and, you know, and philosophy, they, they went hand in hand together. Like science and theology were just together. There, there wasn't any separation of the two of them. You didn't have to say, I'm a scientist, I'm in this camp, and I'm a theologian, I'm in this camp. It was just together. Uh, but then you have the Enlightenment, um, and then uh, now it becomes possible not to believe. Okay, so the Enlightenment is great for non-Christians because now it gives them uh, a reason or an ability, like a, a choice, not to believe in, in God. Um, again, many scientists were believers, but now we've entered this third phase, and it's actually impossible to believe. So this absolute reversal has taken place. Um, so the harmony between science and religion collapsed when you have uh, Charles Darwin publishing the theory of evolution. Darwinism was completely naturalistic. It explained life's origins and developments by strictly natural causes. It was the missing puzzle piece that completed this naturalistic piece of reality. So actually today, uh, the way that we are viewed as Christians is not just something that we've kind of moved past. Like, oh yeah, you know, those folks, those theists, we're past that now. They're kind of back in the Stone Age. It's actually, we're viewed as dangerous. So just try to be a Christian and a scientist, a respected scientist, and see where that goes. You'll find yourself discredited, attacked, slandered. I mean, there's really no place for Christians and scientists, unfortunately, at least in you know, at least in the respected sense. And this new event has provided the opening for what's called the new atheism. So there's four figures who've come to represent the new atheistic movement. Uh, they've been called the four horsemen of the new atheist apocalypse. So see if you've heard of any of these folks. Just uh, raise your hand if you have. Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens. Mm -hmm. So some of you have heard them. So Dawkins, uh, chair at the Oxford University. Um, he's become the most recognizable scientist in the world. He wrote uh, the book that helped him get his reputation, The Selfish Gene, which uh, explains um, his particular facet of evolutionary theory. He refers to himself as the devil's chaplain a term he uh, drew from Darwin himself. He is very arrogant, so he refuses to participate in like formal debates with creationists because he believed that if you do that, you give them respect, and he wants nothing to do with that. He will not give them any kind of respect. So he's, he just doesn't argue with them at all. Um, he wrote, in 2006, he wrote The God Delusion. That became his bestseller. Uh, 
the other one that, again, Christopher Hitchens, um, he wrote his book called uh, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. So you've got this, um, you know, today you've got this new, these new atheists that are really attacking things right there. Um, there's a boldness that they've had that other atheists in the past have not. They're specifically rejecting the Christian God. Um, older atheists would just attack the philosophical notion of God. They specifically reject Jesus. So those are, and, and then um, they make their arguments grounded in uh, science a lot. So three of the horsemen, so to speak, are trained scientists, and then Hitchens uh, considers himself to be scientifically um, informed. So we'll, yeah, we'll, I guess, end with that. Um, I wish I would have had more time to, like, go into more of their teachings and then um, just kind of sum up the doctrine of creation. But I'm really thankful that uh, all of you were in here for this class. Uh, if any of you do, like I said, we repeat these. Um, it'll be offered at least once a year, you know, for the next three years. So hope to see you uh if it's not in this class next week, if it's one down the road. So once again, just thank you so much for coming on Sunday mornings right here to, to learn with us. And we would always welcome feedback. Um, one thing I'd like to do with this class is more discussion, you know, not so much lecture. Um, so we're still trying to get that all sorted out. But I'll let you go now. So thanks for being a part of this. Thank you, Josh. Thank you.